Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. We're going to get into chapter 3, verse 10. That's our text. So open your Bible or navigate on your device, please, to that portion of Scripture. Exodus, pretty easy to find. It's right there after Genesis, second book of the Bible. The topic, Moses approaches the burning bush and hears God calling him. The title of our message, Bush, Bush, I thought I heard him calling my name now. I didn't sing it first. Nobody got it first service. No, that's not true. A couple of old timers, you know, that's famous Deep Purple song. But uh, so I thought, well, I'll go for it. Let's uh, let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, giving us a lighthearted moment just before we get into this text that's going to talk about an oppressed people being delivered by your mighty hand. I pray, Lord, that we would have a sense that you're here today walking in our midst, uh, not just to teach us from this text. Uh, the history of your people and, and an ap- even an application to our life, but, but to really deeply minister to us, Lord, about your love and grace, your mercy and forgiveness. Do a great work in each heart. And Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. The day that they recognize their need for a Savior, ask you to forgive them their sins, repent, and trust you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. With another blockbuster installment coming next month, it's timely to use an illustration from one of the well-known moments in Star Wars. Episode 4, Obi-Wan Kenobi, sensing Alderaan's complete destruction, said this. He said, I felt a great disturbance in the Force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. I fear something terrible has happened. According to Wikipedia, Alderaan had a population of 2 billion that's a real thing, by the way, if you didn't know that. I didn't know that, that there was a... I've heard of Wikipedia, but there is a Wikipedia. And um, for Star Wars fans, obviously. Two, two billion people on Alderaan. There are currently seven and a half billion people on our planet. At any one moment, terrible things are happening all over the earth. Can you imagine the billions of voices groaning on account of the suffering they're enduring? I can't hear them, but God can, and he does. Wait a minute, people object. If God hears them, why doesn't he do something to respond to their cries? Well, he has done something, and he is doing something. To help us get a handle on what he has done and is doing, we can take a look at the children of Israel prior to their exodus from Egypt. We're reading history. This really happened. But it's also for our learning about how God works in the world to deliver lost men and women. Terrible things were happening. We read, the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. They cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. As the story unfolds, we read in chapter 3, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God heard their cries, and he came down to deliver them. Does that sound familiar? It's a foreshadowing of God coming down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, who then dying on the cross and rising from the dead, delivered mankind from sin and death. 
You know how we always say that Jesus is in every story on every page of the Bible? That's how he is in this story. God says, I'm going to come down and be among you. And that's exactly what he had planned to do from the garden and what he did do in the person of Jesus Christ. So suddenly this story isn't ancient at all. Next we read, Behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God sent Moses to deliver them. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does, because Jesus sends out his followers into the world with the gospel to proclaim deliverance. It's all a microcosm of God's plan to save the world. He heard, he came, he sends. It's what God has done, it's what he is doing in response to the cries of lost mankind. Keep all that in mind as we work through these verses. I'll organize my comments around the following two points. Number one, it's good to be reminded that God hears you. And number two, it's good to be reminded that God sends you. Let's take a look at God hearing you in chapter two as it ends. A common plot point in stories is for the characters to send for help, but they don't know if their requests are being received. There's no response until at the last minute, help either comes or it doesn't come. When we pray, if the specific help we are requesting doesn't come, we tend to feel as though we're not being heard. Have you ever heard the expression, the heavens became like brass? It's not in much modern preaching, but it commonly uh, occurs in older Christian literature to describe the feeling that our prayers are not getting through. It's as if you're praying, but the heaven has become like brass and your prayers just bounce off. Now, there are a few things that can hinder our praying. We can't always overlook these. And so, for example, husbands, uh, 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with the understanding, giving honor to them as the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So when you're being a knucklehead at home to your wife, uh, know that that is hindering your prayer life. Because God wants you to do what's right towards your spouse. James chapter 4 verse 3. You ask and don't receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. And so obviously sometimes we're just asking for things. uh, Which the Lord doesn't want to give us. And we just want to indulge ourselves. Proverbs 28 verse 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law. Meaning the law or the word of God. Even his prayer is an abomination. And so God says, if you want to be heard, then obey me first. And then uh, we can have a conversation about that. And so there are some things that can hinder our praying. But I'm talking about the times none of those things is hindering your prayers. But it seems as though the heavens have turned to brass. In those times, you can be confident God has heard you. And that he is working all things together for the good. It's just that you can't see everything happening behind the scenes. We tend to forget that there's always more going on behind the scenes than we have been made privileged to. And that's certainly going to be the case with the children of Israel as we see that in a moment. But this is an important point. Um, We like to see uh, our prayers answered. And we like to see um, God come through. Uh, But when he doesn't come through in the way that we think, we think the heavens are brass. When in reality there's a lot more going on than you realize. A lot of times I've noticed with uh, personal tragedy, people want a causality. They want to say, okay, 
I, this illness or this accident happened to me and then this happened. These five people got saved. Or, and so now I know why God allowed that in my life. And that, that's great. I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from that. But God doesn't have to do anything to show you why he's allowing something in your life. What he's allowing in your life might have an effect on future generations that you can't know anything about. We're going to look at a time in the life of Israel here where God had been planning certain things for 400 years. And they all converge in Moses at the burning bush. And no one had any way of knowing exactly how it was going to work out. Even though God kind of gave them a clue when he talked to Abraham, as we'll see. And so we need to be careful uh, not to say that this is because of that. You know why it's because of? It's because God is a loving God who cares for us and sees what's best in every possible circumstance and works all things together for good, whether we will ever know that this side of eternity or not. And so we have to quit being so demanding of God, he's not obligated to tell us who's going to get saved 20 years from now because of what I went through and how that's going to affect the world in a very positive way. We just need to walk by faith. So in the book of Genesis, I mentioned that there was a lot going on with the Israelites. In Genesis 15, we read this. God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, well before the Israelites were in Egypt, God predicted 400 years of affliction. One of the results was that they would come out of the uh, land that they were afflicted in with great possessions. Uh, And another was that they would be used to judge the Amorites in the promised land. Now, the, the Israelites didn't have the written word of God. Moses would write this story later. But they did have the oral tradition... And they probably knew something, most of them, about these promises that God made to Abraham. Although I'm guessing that they didn't think about them very often. And yet God, years before, had said, here's what's going to happen. 400 years of affliction. And during that time, I'm going to accomplish certain things. And so one of the things was that they would come out of Egypt eventually with great possessions. Now we're going to see that after the series of plagues... The Egyptians were all too happy to see the Israelites go, and they gave them tremendous wealth upon their leaving. And so God, what God is telling us through Abraham is that my people have, are going to have to want to leave Egypt. I'm going to have to do some things or allow some things so that they want to get out of that place, that they don't want to just stay there. And we'll see later in the story of the Israelites, even when God gets them out of Egypt, when things get tough, they want to go back. Primarily because of the garlic, which I can't blame him. But, uh, and so God says, you know, affliction is not a good thing. It's, he's not the author of it. He doesn't want anybody in bondage. But you're never going to leave Egypt if it's a fun, uh, you know, kind of a uh, celebration. And so he had to instill in them a desire to get out of there and he was going to make them wealthy when they left. And so that's all a pretty big project. If, I were to, if God, somebody were to ask me, how are you going to accomplish this? I, I'd draw a blank. Simultaneously, he said, while the promised land is empty, all these other people are going to come and live there like the Amorites. 
And I'm going to need to judge them because there are wicked people who will refuse to repent. And I'm going to use you to do that. And so all of this converges. And if you were born in that first generation, uh, you know, way back in the, before the 400 years, you wouldn't have been able to figure out how all this fit together. But it's coming together for us in a neat way this morning. A lot was going on behind the scenes. A lot is always going on behind the scenes of your life. God is making moves and counter moves to ensure that all things work together for the good, ultimately. Along the way, you won't be able to see everything. You're going to have to trust. And in your crying, learn that God's grace is sufficient for you even when circumstances worsen. Uh, It's a real thing sometimes. Uh, I've had to tell people, and so have you sometimes, hey, things are bad, and guess what? They're going to get worse. You can't always promise a person that their circumstances are going to get any better. People come in with bad marriages, marriages falling apart, there's, and all of a sudden, it, usually it's the husband who now has, you know, okay, I'll be spiritual, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, and he believes that through the power of prayer and all of that, his marriage will come back together. It should, but that doesn't always happen. And, and I have to say, hey, this could get worse. You need to just draw close to God and have him draw close to you. We'll pray and we'll seek what's best. Uh, but sometimes things are for the worse. That's why people don't talk to me much anymore. But anyway, I, I hope I'm being honest with you. But in verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. The children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. The death of the Pharaoh set things in motion. Reminds us how important timing can be. We have an idiom in our language, timing is everything. It may not be everything, but in God's providence, it is critical. For example, the Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses because of, he had murdered an Egyptian died just as Moses was done with his training in the desert and God was going to send him back. And so it was a perfect timing. In fact, all this is coming together at just the perfect time. Verse 24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The Israelites had been crying out all along, but now was the time that their groaning was going to be alleviated. The mention of his covenant is significant to our discussion because it reminds us that God has made promises and he will keep them. In fact, he must keep them. God told Abraham he was going to make of him a great nation that would possess a great land. Those promises were unconditional, meaning that God would keep them no matter what the Israelites did. Most of the things we pray for, especially in our sufferings, are not unconditional promises. If I'm sick, especially seriously, I pray for healing. God still heals, but it isn't an unconditional promise. He's not obligated to heal. He may choose to heal, or he may treat me like he did the Apostle Paul, refusing to remove the thorn in the flesh because he needed it to remain humble, and so he'd be able to sing, your grace is enough. Now, there are a great many unconditional promises that God has made and must keep, and these are the ones that keep us. Sticking with the healing example, I trust that if I'm not healed, I'll be in heaven the moment I die, absent from my body and present with the Lord. That's a tremendous hope, don't you think? Other religions, other philosophies don't have that. They don't have that absolute confidence that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord because they don't have a resurrected Savior. They don't have someone who who died and conquered death and rose from the dead in Jesus Christ. 
There are a bunch of unconditional promises like that for our future. There's also a bunch for today. I know that Jesus can never leave me or forsake me. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. He said he couldn't and he won't. I know that his Holy Spirit indwells me and that he can infill me over and over again. In the end, the light afflictions that I prayed so much about are going to be completely overshadowed by God's unconditional promises to me and to us. Verse 25 says, God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. One version of the Bible translates that last phrase, and he knew that he would help them. And so these closing verses of chapter 2 are the setup for what's coming next. God heard their cries, and the time had come for him to act. I'm hurting in some areas of my life, and you are too. It's not wrong to hope that today is the day that it is time for God to act and alleviate our suffering. It's great to see that help come right over the horizon. But if it isn't his timing, we need to embrace the fact that his grace is sufficient, and if need be, look past this life to his eternal promises. Matthew Henry put it this way. I like this. It's very bold. He says, let those who think themselves buried alive be content to shine like lamps in their tombs and wait till God's time comes for setting them on a candlestick. You ever felt like you were buried alive in trouble of one kind or another? I'm sure you have. And so shine like a lamp in that dark place until the Lord sets you on on his candlestick, either in this life or in the next. He makes all things beautiful, right, in his time. It's good to be reminded that God sends you, as we get into chapter 3, when we read the Old Testament, we're reading about how God's plan to redeem and restore the human race and his creation unfolded. Adam and Eve sinned. God immediately responded with a plan. He would come as a man born of a woman. As that God-man, having added humanity to his deity... He could take the place of mankind, die for our sins, and save us, restoring creation. That's one reason why the first thing you see in the next set of verses is that God came down to earth to meet with Moses. It captures the essence of his plan, God with us. That's a a great summary of, of Christianity, of biblical Christianity, God with us. No one else has that. We have an exclusive. We have the patent on that, you might say. You know, people, they like to complain against the God of the Bible. They like to say, where is God when it hurts and all this kind of stuff. What's their solution? Okay, I'll I'll step back. Maybe you don't think that Christianity is working. What's your solution? All their solutions are lame. They're terrible. They're not logical. They don't make sense even within their own system. And they don't offer any hope. We're the only guys that have a God who became man and took our place. Understanding all of our suffering and everything that we feel and can save us forever. It's an absolutely unique plan. We may not like how long it's taking. But nobody has anything better. I think I've told you many times, you know, my my familiarity having gone to uh, secular college was with existential philosophy which if taken to its logical conclusion, which by the way, existentialism was a reaction against Christianity because the philosophers got together and they said after World War I and then World War II, they said there is no God or he doesn't care if there is one. So how are we going to live? They came up with these existential philosophies and the logical conclusion, the philosophical conclusion 
the ultimate conclusion of being an existentialist is you kill yourself because there's no reason to live. Nothing gives any meaning to life. There's no possible meaning to life. Uh, and, and so uh, I'll take the Bible for $200, please. But anyway, you know, that kind of thing. And so nobody has a solution. Everybody who's criticizing, what's your solution? You don't have one. We have one. You may not like it, but the more you get into it, the more you think about it, the more profound it is, the more wonderful it is. God came down. Now Moses, verse 1, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We met Jethro in our last study, only there he was called Reuel, not unusual for people in the Bible to have multiple names. And to tell you the truth, I don't know if I'd rather be Reuel or Jethro, but uh, who knows? Everybody argues about why he goes by one name, then the other. I think there's maybe two or three other names he's called too in the Bible. So this guy, he was a name junkie. Uh, he was a priest, and because of his descent from Midian, who was the son of Abraham, we say that he was a true believer in God. And so he wasn't uh, you know, worshiping pagan gods. He wasn't the priest of some weird religion. Uh, he was worshiping God uh, with the revelation that they had been given up to that time. Now, as chapter 3 opens, Moses had been shepherding in the desert for 40 years. We're not told that here, but we do find that out in Stephen's speech before the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 7. We talked about God's timing with regard to there being a new Pharaoh and the iniquity of the Amorites being full. God also needed to prepare Moses to be the shepherd of his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Now, some of you have uh, extensive education. You've got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, maybe a PhD. I mean, you went to school for years, uh, maybe 10 years sometimes. Apparently, the most uh, difficult degree to get is that of shepherding uh, because Moses had to spend 40 years getting his... Either, either he couldn't pass his state boards uh, and had to keep trying or there's a lot to learn when you're shepherding God's flock. In his foreknowledge, God knew that the Jews would refuse to enter the land and they would spend 40 years wandering in the desert. And so Moses had a year-for-year -year practicum. Uh, he'd already been in the desert 40 years, and so when he realized that God was going to keep him in the desert another 40 years only with people, not sheep, uh, he was at least not shocked. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Moses, who's the author of Exodus calls it the mountain of God, looking back on all these events that take place, like his calling and uh, the giving of the law. It wasn't called the mountain of God when he discovered the burning bush. Uh, it became the mountain of God because God met with him there. Concerning Mount Sinai, here's an interesting comment. The name Sinai is probably hinted at by the designation of the burning bush in Hebrew as Sene, as if Sinai meant the mountain of the Sene bush. I didn't know that. And so this incident is super important in Jewish history. The exact location of Horeb or Mount Sinai is unknown to us today. I've seen a couple of specials on the History Channel about people think they know exactly where it is, but we don't. And it's just as well because if we did, there'd be a gift shop there. <laughs> people would go there as a pilgrimage uh, to worship. Uh, so I say leave it alone. Uh, verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. The angel of the Lord is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. The technical term for this is a theophany or a Christophany. 
it's generally agreed that this was a thorn bush common in the desert. I want you to hold that thought or at least mull over it uh, and think about what things that might symbolize as we continue in the text. And we'll get back to that. Verse 3, then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. Not a lot to do in the desert. When you see a bush that's on fire and it doesn't get consumed, that's like Disneyland. I mean, you know, let's go. Let's check that out. You ever burned your dead Christmas tree in the fireplace? I don't recommend it. Neither does the fire department. We lived up in Running Springs. I thought, I just cut the tree in little pieces and put it in our fireplace. What a mistake. It's a miracle our house didn't burn down. Of course, I had learned as a kid, when I was a little kid living at home with my parents, and said, we burned everything in our fireplace. You want to get rid of some uh, gift wrap? Uh, I don't know how we made it this far, I'll tell you the truth. The things that I didn't know as an adult. Little things like ammonia and bleach shouldn't be mixed together. They're deadly. I don't know how many times I did that. How many of you used to wash your hands with gasoline? Raise your hand right now. What a great solvent that is, yeah. How many of you did it while smoking? (laughs) My dad one time got blown out of a heater because he was trying to see if the the pilot was lit with a giant match, you know, and stuff. All we heard is an explosion, and then his hair was singed all over his face. It's funny now. Well, actually, it was funny then, too, once we realized he wasn't dead. So, yeah, I I don't know how, I I honestly don't know how I made it this far. Uh, Every day, it seems I learn something that everybody else knows is dangerous. So anyway, this bush, it would be similar. A thorn bush was that dry. And for it to be burning and not consumed, this was big time. Isn't it amazing, though, to think about the small details upon which human history advances? God's going to come down. That's a pretty momentous event, right? He's going to come down in a bush and burn and hope that Moses is going to be so bored That he wants to go and check it out and see what's going on. And so verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said Moses, Moses. And he said here I am. Moses took a step towards God and God then further revealed himself to Moses. I often tell folks to do the next thing and then God will give them instruction. Ours is a walk of faith one step at a time. God is not going to be a GPS for you. He's not going to show you the end of your destination. He's just going to show you the next turn. That wouldn't work for us, right? I mean, can you imagine, uh, okay, I want to go here. Take a right, okay? Then what? Just keep going until I talk to you again. But you want to see ahead of time where you're going. But God says, just take a step and then I will meet you. And that's how he increases our faith. And so if you're stalled... Chances are you know the next thing God wanted you to do or wants you to do, but you're waiting to have the full picture because you think you have some negotiating to do. You think it's between you and God whether you get there, and he's already figured out where he wants to take you. So just go in his direction and let him lead you. Then he said, don't draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. God's presence made the mountain holy, not anything about the place itself. The removal of sandals, common practice when you entered a house or temple, show of respect, anticipated relaxation and fellowship. The one thing I regret about our uh, trip in the 1980s to Japan to do some teaching for 
uh, Baptist churches in Japan was that I didn't bring my own slippers because the Japanese have feet about this big. <laughs> you have to take your shoes off and put on their slippers that are about that big. And it hurts. It hurts like crazy to walk on those things. But anyway, that's another thing. I said, hey, can I just go in my socks? Oh, no. No, you have to have the slippers on. It's cultural. It's a wonder we didn't cause an international incident the whole time we were there. But anyway, there's a debate about whether or not the Jewish priests served barefoot. You ever thought about the priests being barefoot? The Bible doesn't say one way or the other. Although barefoot advocates, and there are many, point out that in the extensive description of the outfit, there's no mention of his sandals. Everything else is described, but not the high priest's sandals. Should we go barefoot in the church today? No. Now, if you can't afford shoes, you're welcome here. We don't want to turn anybody away because they can't afford shoes. As for those of us who can't afford shoes, we worship God in spirit and in truth. One application I would make of that principle is that no object of clothing can make me feel more or less spiritual. If I worship in spirit, according to the truth of the word of God, having a hat on or off, sandals on or off, Uh, Long dress, short dress, uh, slacks, tie, whatever. Nothing can make me feel more spiritual before God. Because it's only clothing. Taking off my shoes is nothing. Wearing my shoes is nothing. So how would we decide? Well, I should be all things to all men. If I'm ever in a congregation that expects barefootedness, I should kick off my sinooks to show respect. And go barefoot with my ugly hobbit feet. If not, I should stay covered, sparing everyone the horror. (laughs) Verse 6, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Just a final word about being barefoot, because this actually is a thing, you know. If you search for this, there's a big debate online about going barefoot before God on stage in the church and whether you should or shouldn't do it. There's guys that have done it for years, then they repent of it and don't do it and vice versa. So here's a final word. Moses also did what? He hid his face. So should we also hide our faces when we truly worship God? And you think, well, that sounds stupid. Yeah, exactly. So we need to go barefoot to show how much we reverence God, but we don't have to hide our face. I'll tell you one practical reason we shouldn't do either Because if you hide your face while you're barefoot, you're going to stub your toe. And all of a sudden, you're going to be in a Pentecostal service. (laughs) Mention of the patriarchs reminds of at least two things. God must keep his unconditional promises made to them. And the information God gave Moses was nothing new. It was a deeper, progressive revelation of his nature and his plan. You know, when you're taught the word of God... You get deeper into its truth. There's no new truth. There's nothing new to be discovered taking you in a different direction. That's why in the Sunday school, uh, you know, the stories start very, very light. You tell the stories. Then they come back the next year. You tell the stories a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper until you become an adult. You get deep into the stories. But they're always the same stories. Sometimes people come along and they say, oh, we know all the Bible stories. Well, that's great. You should. And you should get deeper and deeper and deeper into them, setting your roots down deep. Uh, There's nothing new under the sun. There's just a deepening of our relationship with the Lord. 
And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. The non-believer accuses God of not caring about human pain when in truth, he might care too much. God's plan for redeeming and restoring will eventually end all suffering. There won't be so much as one tear ever in eternity. I can't even begin to fathom that, but it's true. But once the consummation of that plan comes, it also means the end of every opportunity for the lost to be saved. Taskmasters, we all have them. They're the people and the things that are against us. They're the illnesses and the conditions that lash us. None of them can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the, uh, that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. This phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, means that Canaan was ideal for raising livestock, feeding on good pasture land, they would be full of milk. Flowing with honey means that the little bees were busy making honey. Milk and honey suggest agricultural prosperity. Something else about that land, though, it was full of enemies, fierce enemies that would need to be overcome. And so it, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, but there's also squatters in the land. God wasn't going to deliver his children to a better, more comfortable life in Egypt. He was going to lead them into battle, into the promised land. And again, you see how God is, is moving behind the scenes to get their, them ready to leave Egypt. I'm sure they would have been content if they had never been oppressed to stay in Egypt or if they could have overcome their oppression with just a bill of rights. If Moses had been able to go and, and negotiate a bill of rights for the Hebrews, they didn't really want to leave Egypt until they were oppressed severely. But they needed to get out of Egypt to get into the promised land, which was better. I think you'd agree that being in the promised land is better than hanging out in Egypt if you're a child of God. But then when you get into the promised land, there's enemies there. Fierce, overwhelming enemies uh, that kept them from going in 40 years earlier. And, and so God is, and yet you look at that story and you think, man, what a great story. The conquest of the land under Joshua and guys like Joshua and Caleb and the stories that they told. It's amazing. So God is always pressing us forward. We don't understand, but we just need to follow. Christian life isn't a life of ease, having the best of this world. This world and its God are always contrary to you. They need to be overcome. A key phrase dropped here, I have come down. In context, God had come down to inhabit the burning bush. Prophetically, it preaches to us of the incarnation of God taking upon himself human flesh. Verse 9, now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God keeps reiterating that he heard their cries. The Egyptians definitely were oppressors. Nevertheless, God waited. Whenever God waits, we can be certain among his motives is that he is not willing any should perish, but rather that they would receive eternal life. Let me give you a dumb hypothetical. I say it's dumb because I don't really understand logic. There are rules to logic and setting these things up. But I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. If you could choose whether or not to endure some suffering, but you knew that if you did endure it, 
it would result in even one person being saved for eternity, would you choose the suffering? And of course your answer is yes, because you're a Christian. You understand the value of eternal life. And that whatever light suffering, no matter how heavy it might be this side of eternity, it's nothing compared to someone suffering eternally having perished in hell. And so you would be on board with that. In the grace of God, you would endure that. Well, I, I, that, something like that is going on a cosmic scale because God says, I am long-suffering, not willing any should perish. And while I'm waiting for the next guy and the next gal and the next few people to get saved, you're going to have to suffer because we're, you're living in a fallen world in a body of flesh. God could end this any time. But once he ends it, some of your loved ones, some of your friends, some of your co-workers are going to be uh, lost for eternity. That's going to happen one time. You know, sooner or later, that, that does happen. That's how we get through this thing. You know, There's the re- resurrection of the church, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the millennium. And then finally, it's going to all be over. And there's no chance for people to get saved anymore. And so God is waiting patiently and we wait with him. And while we wait, we suffer. Verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is a bombshell. This is something. God heard. God came down. And then he said, now I'm going to send you. Wow. His plan was to send a shepherd to lead them first away from Egypt, then into the promised land with an extended stay in the desert by their own choice. Moses isn't going to like this plan. We're going to see that in subsequent studies. For now, we see God's mega plan in micro. He personally comes down, commissions a believer, who then sends, he sends with the authority proclaim deliverance to the oppressed. That, that's essentially the Christian life, is it not? God came down, God with us, and now he sends you. Earlier I pointed out that the bush was burning but not being consumed was a thorn bush. Thorns came into creation after the fall of man, after Adam and Eve sinned. Thorns and thorn bushes are a part of the curse. Fire is a symbol of what in the Bible? Well, it's a who, it's the Holy Spirit, because on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers was represented by fire. And so fire in the midst of a thorn bush, it's a picture of God dwelling among the curse, among the thorns. He did it first as the God-man, as Jesus Christ, who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He does it now as he indwells each and every believer under the curse in these bodies of flesh. Puritan John Owen put it like this. He said, The eternal fire of the divine nature dwells in the bush of our frail nature, yet it is not consumed thereby. God thus dwells in this bush with all his goodwill towards sinners. And so a beautiful picture of the Lord coming down, indwelling us, and then sending us to others. Apostle Peter explained God's plan and what God was doing and is doing like this. It's 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 9. He says, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, 
What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. And so Peter says, hey, God is moving forward with this plan. Earlier he said one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. It's not a formula. It just means that from God's perspective, he's right on time. What seems to be taking a long time to us isn't really taking much time at all. And the time that it's taking is for God to reach people like he reached you and I with the message of salvation so that we could be saved and on our way to eternity. He says, but one of these days... Uh, he's going to get on with his plan to destroy the current heaven and earth and restore them. And there will be a righteous future, but only for those who are believers. And so for now, God hears our cries. He hears the cries of the whole world. And he has for all these centuries. And what did he do about it? He came and he indwelt uh, a, a human body. He became the God man, fire in the thorn bush, as it were. And what is he doing about it? He's sending you and I with the message of the gospel so that more people will get saved before he finishes out the plan that he's promised. The Holy Spirit is within your thorn bush. We talk about having the treasure of the gospel in an earthen vessel. It's the same kind of an idea. You're, you're the thorn bush, cursed as a human being, but with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, sent out to save others.